Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years, Oak Bay Bikes has two locations and free pickup drop-off service. They are there wherever you need them. Find Oak Bay Bikes online at oakbaybikes.com. You're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. In this series, we feature stories from the greater Victoria area that speak to what really matters to Vancouver Islanders. Randy is no stranger to unconventional living situations. When we asked him for a tour of his current home, he made his way from the house we met him outside of to a mid-80s model van parked in the driveway. It's been a couple of months. Pretty much through the whole summer. Living a nomadic van life has its ups and downs, according to Randy. For example, his home doubles as a work vehicle. The seats and the sink and stuff come out, and then I use it as a cargo van. It also doubles as a gear tote for the bands he plays in. So yeah, the bed comes out too. We took it on tour twice this summer, and like, has an optional other row of seats, the blue one there. However, thinking into the future, Randy knows that he will need to look for a new home soon. The van has been really fine for the summertime, but um, I can see how if I'm like soggy at the end of the day, or like, <laughs> I'll kind of want a house to go to, you know? So. What is someone to do in Victoria when they are in need of a home? The vacancy rate is so alarmingly low right now that many citizens are in dire straits when it comes to finding a roof to put over their heads. While the media looks to the cause of Victoria's housing crisis, both community organizations and community members are getting crafty with how to solve the problem at hand. Higher density accommodations are popping up over top of older, more spread out apartment buildings while tiny homes are being built in backyards and on trailer beds. As the critical eye of Canada zeroes in on Vancouver's housing woes, Victoria citizens quietly work away to combat the very similar problems that they are facing. In this episode, we explore stories of how the Victoria community continues to fight the dire housing situation in the city. We'll investigate the rocky path to redevelopment of an affordable housing complex, get a tour of a tiny home being built just outside of the city, and documentarian Charles Wilkinson will fill us in on the similarities between the Victoria and Vancouver housing market. From CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Stay tuned. So, for the majority of renters, the possibility of buying a home is not in the cards. First on the docket, we sit down with Charles Wilkinson, a Canadian filmmaker who since 2011 has been creating documentaries focusing on hot-button issues around Canada, including the urban housing crisis. Wilkinson's latest film, Vancouver No Fixed Address, features points of view from a handful of diverse voices trying to survive in Vancouver's housing market. Those voices include some who are living out of their cars, and even a young couple who managed to buy a home. From the documentary, comparisons can be drawn between Vancouver and Victoria when it comes to the dismal outlook for those trying to afford a home in either area. Charles and executive producer Max Collins take time to talk about the documentary, and Charles explains what Victorians should be doing to achieve a home of their own someday. Just a hint, it's not just about saving up tirelessly. Coming up, CFUV's Metro Housing Market Review with Charles Wilkinson. Prices the way they are in Vancouver, I'll probably never own a home here. Vancouver No Fixed Address 
a new documentary from Canadian filmmaker Charles Wilkinson, focuses on the lives of Vancouverites who are in the mix of a high-priced housing market. The film itself gets a wide array of viewpoints, from realtors to folks who live in their vans, to people who were able to afford a home by pinching every penny. Although a film about the Victoria housing crisis has not yet been made, comparisons can be drawn from the two cities and their respective accommodation woes. The vacancy rate in Victoria sits at a dismal 0.5%, with the average price of a one-bedroom apartment being just over $900, according to statistics provided by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation in late 2016. Charles Wilkinson spoke with CFUV to provide some insight into the similarities that both cities face in their need for more affordable housing. So, welcome, Charles. Thanks so much for taking the time, Max. I appreciate it. Let's start off with an introduction to your most recent work. You mentioned that this documentary isn't your first that involves an eye into a political matter in Canada? Yes, we call this current one uh, the fourth in, a, in what's become a quad, quadrilogy. And yes, that's actually a word. The first one was called Peace Out, which interestingly is about the Peace River Valley where they're trying to build that, that ruinous hydroelectric project. The one after that was called Oil Sands Karaoke, and it was about a karaoke contest in the oil sands in Fort McMurray. Uh, the third one was Haida Gwaii on the Edge of the World. Okay. Could you tell me what Vancouver No Fixed Address features? I don't know, how can I put this? The, the, the housing crisis, which people are rightly describing it as in both Victoria and Vancouver and also in key cities around the world, is one that's characterized by an awful lot of misinformation and, and poorly informed discourse. You know, somebody will start shouting about, oh, it's all the Chinese people's fault, and somebody else will say, no, it's the government. And the arguments never really get resolved. What we've done is we've collected a series of extremely well-informed experts, people like uh, David Suzuki and um, the London School of Economics trained uh, economist and Gregor Robertson, the mayor of Vancouver, and Bob Rennie, the super mega developer condo king, people who have the data and who understand precisely what's going on in their area, as well as a number of people who are simply residents of the city and or former residents of the city have been driven out, and uh, people who are, are are experiencing the the conflict that that is is boiling the the west coast here we talk to them and they make a really clear case for what the component parts of this problem are and point to some possible solutions for how we could turn this thing around this isn't a piece of real estate this isn't property this is my home this economy is now going to be about offshore investment basically that's going to drive up housing prices. We're going to have construction jobs. Some people will get rich, but only a very select few in the end are benefiting. This movie is very obviously based on Vancouver's housing market, but are there links between what's going on in Vancouver and the housing situation in Victoria? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think it's to Victoria's great credit that that is the case, as weird as that sounds. You know, people don't want to live in crummy cities. People want to live in great cities. You know, there's a reason why people flock to New York. It's a great city. And there's a reason why people come to Vancouver. It's a wonderful place to live. It's just the, the scenic beauty and the culture. It's just it's such a great cosmopolitan place. Well, Victoria is as well. So people will say, hey, I can't afford to live in Vancouver anymore. So where's my, where, where else can I go that's great, that maybe is a bit more affordable? So people have been, I think, 
that probably a lot of your listeners know people who've really come flocking to Victoria looking for affordable housing. Because, you know, people can commute, they can work from home, or they can find work in Victoria because there are, you know, employment opportunities there for people. Unlike places like Belmont or Castlegar or Mackenzie, where it's a lot harder to find good, middle-class, well-paid jobs. So, yeah, Victoria is a great place to live. And so people will come there when they can't afford to live in Vancouver. And yet we've seen and we have firsthand commentary from some of the people in our film that they've gone to Victoria thinking they were going to escape the problem, but it's just followed them right over there. And I know that you guys have seen sharp increases in the price of housing there. And if something isn't done to forestall that, to stop it, then you're going to see towers sprouting up all over the place that really have a really terrible impact on the, on the nature and the character of the, of the community. The towers that you're talking about, the high-rises that are in Vancouver right now, and the ones that you're worried about for Victoria, it's a kind of visual divide between the so-called haves and have-nots. Is that what you mean? I think that that's, by and large, an accurate statement. I'm, I hesitate because I love this city so much, and I believe it's worth fighting for and that it's possible to turn around. But uh, honestly, we see this every day. We've got this underclass that's being created in front of our eyes of people who don't own homes. And you see many of them on the street in the downtown east side, the people at the very bottom of the totem pole who are living on the street. And it's almost like a zombie apocalypse. I mean, we're all embarrassed at at what's happened to our city. And yet you'll see cars driving through right past them. And you see this in our film that cost as much as a house. It's not uncommon to see million-dollar cars. We have a million-dollar car in our movie with a kid who's like 17 driving the car. So, yeah, we're seeing this enormous gulf uh, between the the haves and the have-nots, and it's growing. And again, this is something that we've allowed to happen by by not being present in the in the in the debate. And I believe that you know when we do get involved and we do stand up and march, that that we can change it. So you're saying that Victoria citizens can change the housing market by protesting? I think the the, the most simple and straightforward tool that people can make use of in Victoria, especially students, is to get out and make your opinion heard. You're finding it more and more difficult to find affordable housing, which really is tantamount to a massive unvoted upon tax increase. These are the sorts of things you need to march about. You need to be on the on the lawn of the legislature and making your opinion known because the guys who are influencing the decisions right now are people who have a tremendous amount of money. And the only way that you can be in the same discussion is by using the thing you have, which is, is your bodies, your feet, and getting out there and letting it be known that, that it doesn't have to be this way and you demand that it be dealt with. Clearly, the government has the ability to create a set of regulations that will level the playing field. Because although people talk about there being a free market at play here and they don't want to interfere with the free market, the market for housing in British Columbia is anything but free. It's skewed very much in favor of international speculators and also domestic speculators, people who buy homes not with the intent to live in them, but with the intent to flip them for enormous profits. And that's driving the cost of the housing that you and I live in completely out of reach of the average person who lives and works here. Isn't there an easier way to be able to afford housing? Couldn't somebody just like save a little harder when they want to buy a home? Uh, That's kind of a loaded question, Max. Uh, Certainly, the people that we talked to in the film, the young people who had actually succeeded in entering the real estate market, um, were people who had, they don't go out for dinner, they don't drink a lot of craft beer, 
They don't spend money on trips. I mean, the one couple in particular lived in, in group housing with nine other people for quite a while, saving up, you know, uh, enough money to make a down payment on a very modest condominium, which they managed to then buy. And they're both working like crazy, making mortgage payments, and they've made all these sacrifices. And they're, yes, they're in the market. That's what we noticed about the people who did manage to buy houses is that they, they had to sacrifice a great deal to do so. And, you know, to be really honest, I'm not sure that it's ever been a lot different in that respect, because I know in my generation, because I'm not a millennial anymore, that we had to work really, really hard. My peers, the ones who did buy homes, you know, they didn't party an awful lot. They didn't go to, to, to Cabo for vacations. They just saved and saved and saved. So I think it's always been a real challenge to own a home, unless you're rich or your parents are rich or something. I think the thing that's concerning so much of us now is that even when you do save and save and save, it's just, you know, in Vancouver right now, and it's going to be this way very, very soon in Victoria, according to the people that we've been speaking to, in Vancouver, a really crummy fixer-upper in a not very good neighborhood is around $2 million now. Now, there's just no way that a couple who isn't making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year can create a down payment for that or to, to afford the mortgage payment. So, you know, we have a problem here. We sold the house because we were just offered too much money. That's really it. The van is my home because I don't have a, a, a real home. It's a little chilly, you know. Okay, so what's going to happen to Vancouver if the housing market doesn't cool down soon? Uh, the same thing that I expect will happen, and is happening to Victoria, is that the top end and the bottom end of the market with, with respect to age is going to hollow out. Like, young people won't be able to afford to live there, so they'll move away. And old people who are on a fixed income won't be able to afford to, to live there, so they'll move away as well. And what we see in communities in Vancouver, and I don't want to name any community by name, but the places where that transition has been the most effective, what you'll see is that there are no artists, there are no young people, they have trouble finding people to work in the restaurants, any kind of service work. And basically what you have is you have a community where you see rich people walking around looking for something to buy during the daylight hours, and then the doors close at 7 o'clock at night, and it's as quiet as a tomb. There's just no cultural life at all. And that's not what you want to see in your community. You want to have a lived-in place where it's vibrant and there's restaurants and there's bistros and there's nightlife and there's live music and people on the street singing. I mean, a busker cannot survive in Vancouver now. Interestingly, our movie is filled with buskers singing. There's tons of music and it's, it's beautiful and lyrical. But they're all saying, I'm living with 12 other people and I'm, I, I can't live here anymore. And what happens when all the working class folks leave? Oh, uh, Bob Rennie, who's one of the guys who's building and whose interest it is in building stuff, he makes quite clear that he believes it's going to be a tourist destination. And you're seeing that now. I mean, Vancouver and Victoria are both. You, you look at the Inner Harbor in Victoria, the endless flight of planes coming and landing and all the tourists wandering around all the time. That can maintain a kind of an economy. People will have bed and breakfast and they'll have uh, tourist facilities and restaurants and so forth. I mean, a city can have a kind of a life like that. If you look at a place like Carmel, you look at a place like Las Vegas or Niagara Falls, those places are, it would be hard to describe them as communities, but they have a kind of a culture. That's what's in store for Vancouver and Victoria if we don't fight to make them, to keep them, the wonderful communities that they are. Places where you know everybody on your block, you can take a walk on a Sunday evening and there's people out on the veranda that you can call by name, people who will help you get in trouble. And that's what a community is. And if you've got every second house on the block is vacant because somebody's using it as an investment instrument, that's not a community anymore. 
And we have the tools at our disposal to deal with that. The city government in Victoria can enact a vacancy tax that will discourage people holding empty houses. That's not something that's impossible. It's very much against the interests of the people, the realtors and the, and the financial sector guys who did donate money to the political uh, parties that run the, the government. But it's, it's something that we can demand and get. So, Charles, now that you've made this film and heard all sides of the issue, do you have any advice for those who are struggling to afford rent or a home in either Vancouver or Victoria? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think I'd, I would counsel any young person who's, who's wanting to make their life in, in Vancouver or Victoria to really think clearly about the wholeness, the overall life that they're hoping and wanting to live. And if you're going to be in a situation where you partner up with somebody and you both work long hours and devote, you know, there are people who are devoting 70, 80% of their disposable income to housing. The kind of stress that that places on a relationship and on a person is pretty crushing. And I mean, there are other places to live. And I'm not saying, hey, you should just move somewhere else. But I'm really appalled at some of the decisions, the financial decisions that people are making. Yeah, Vancouver and Victoria are wonderful places to live. They really are. But at the end of the day, if the forces that be make it impossible for us to live here, we have to think about what our lives are and what matters most to us. I mean, what matters most to me is my family and friends and my my work. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to do those things. I'm going to fight to stay in Vancouver as hard as I can. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to sacrifice my family and my friends for that. I'll move to to Nelson (laughs) and where there are cool little coffee shops and maybe we can build something there. At a certain point, you can't argue with the weather and we're sure not getting any help from the government on this one. I don't know if a lot of people have recognized yet that they're in a fight for their survival in this city. Thank you very much to Charles Wilkinson for participating. For more information on this documentary, visit www.charleswilkinson.com. We just heard the Metro Housing Market Review with Charles Wilkinson, a story curated by CFUV's production team. Next up, local carpenter Randy gives us a tour of his passion project, which also just so happens to be his solution to the tough housing market. That's in a minute. Stay with us. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes, serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years. Are you curious about e-bikes? Check out the Oak Bay Bikes Demo On Demand program. At Oak Bay Bikes, E is for everyone. For more information, visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore, or online at oakbaybikes.com. From CFUV 101.9 FM, you're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. Welcome back. In this episode, we are exploring stories of how Victoria citizens are surviving in the housing market at the moment. We're taking a look at building, rebuilding, affordability, and unaffordability of living accommodations in the city. Our next story involves a small plot of land, a whole lot of lumber, a van, 
and a dream. Tiny homes have been all the rage in overpopulated cities like Victoria for quite some time now. Residents are building homes only big enough for essential living on trailer beds, in backyards, or anywhere that can fit a minuscule living space. Randy is a Victoria citizen that has never really liked the idea of living in an apartment, so when working around the high price of rent in the city, he decided to get creative with his living scenario by putting together one of these tiny homes. With a knowledge of carpentry and a keen love for building projects from the ground up, he drew up some plans, gathered any extra bit of lumber that he could find, and got to work. CFUV visited him halfway through the building of his new home. Here's the tiny home tour. I have definitely done a lot of sketches. I feel like mostly they were to describe everything to other people because like it was all pretty clear in my head. It's a luckily a really small, non-daunting kind of footprint to deal with uh, because it's just a big square. It's been a pretty long process because I've been collecting wood for like two years in hopes of eventually doing this. <laughs> so I've always had a stack of old doors and like old lumber and old beams whenever they come available, I pull it aside. This is Randy, a carpenter from Victoria. By all rights, Randy is a creator. He likes to work with his hands and build just about anything from scratch. I don't exactly know what it is, but it's everything. It's cars or um, houses or furniture or whatever else. I guess I started with furniture. I actually originally wanted to be a mechanic. Um, I was always tinkering on cars. Like Even before I had my license, I had a car that I'd swap the engine on. So when it came time for Randy to find a new home in Victoria, he put his creative mind to good use after getting some inspiration from a work project. We were building a little laneway house. It was slightly bigger than this. It's like 25 by 25 kind of thing. And when I saw that, I was like, uh, I could easily do this. <laughs> and then um, this old shack is like the perfect thing to, to kind of convert. Tiny homes, which are just that, houses with very small square footage, are becoming a popular building project for those who are looking to own their own dwellings. These homes are being built on small plots of land or on trailer beds, and can come in sizes as big as 500 square feet and as minuscule as 100 square feet. Robert Leonardo, president of the Tiny Home Alliance Advocacy Group, explains further. Typically, it's referenced as somewhere between 400 to 500 square feet or smaller total dwelling size of the of the building and having all the amenities of a, of a, say a regular size house. So kitchen, bath, etc. Now, whether or not all those areas are kind of shared in one open space or divided doesn't really matter, but it ultimately boils down to the square footage of the home. Randy takes me on a tour of the mock-up of his new abode. Yeah, I guess when you walk in from the front, there's a bunch of different levels. The lowest loft is the bedroom. The highest loft is storage, and it's above the bathroom on the right. So the kitchen is built under the overhang of the loft, the stove, so that uh, the range hood can mount to the underside of the loft. And then the rest of the kitchen is all open, 12-foot ceilings. This isn't exactly how it's going to be. There's going to be kind of a utility room in this back corner. Okay, so another um, wall is going to go in. Kind of almost exactly where the bathroom wall is on, okay. the, on the left side of the building. Um, so it's going to be the dryer, the washer's under the stairs, and the dryer is just right here in the uh, utility room. And on the other side of this wall, underneath the bedroom loft, is going to be like the entertainment unit here, with like TV and stereo equipment and stuff. The front left side is going to be all open air as well. The living room and this dining room kitchen corner area, the kitchen counter is going to extend all the way to the front and wrap the corner. 
And so this is going to be like a work desk, computer desk, and then this whole area can kind of, if you're cooking a big meal, you can use the counter for kitchen if you're, you know, drying or... Right now I'm at the point where I can actually physically build it temporarily like it is right now. It's mocked up and it looks all right, but it's mostly so I can like really visualize where everything's going to fit because I want to keep everything as conventional as possible. I want it to be unique, but I don't want to like sometimes in renos and rentals and stuff, you see like really weird things jammed in corners and I just wanted to make sure everything's got a little bit of space and everything looks like it's supposed to be there. So actually physically building it, taking it down, building it is like a really fun way of doing it. <laughs> Why would someone consider building a tiny home? A couple of chief reasons would be, first and foremost, is less cost. In an age where we're now exceeding half a million dollars for a typical 1,900 to 2,200 square foot home in, in Canada, any, almost anywhere throughout Canada, that's just simply out of the reach of most people. Coming up with a down payment is difficult enough, let alone making monthly payments. So the main motivator is, is less cost. The smaller the footprint, the less building materials, the less everything, and less ongoing costs as well. So energy consumption is drastically cut back because you're not lighting up tremendous amounts of space or multiple rooms, heating, etc. Can you give insight into why tiny homes are so popular right now? Part of this is a huge influence with the uh, American media, HGTV and other networks that are even a lot of very skilled and uh, capable YouTubers are getting uh, a lot of popularity by doing their tours of tiny houses and things like that. Media and entertainment of it, I think, are a big proponent. But I think that's just a result or a symptom of the average citizen, if you will, in Canada certainly speaking to Canada, we are, by citizens, we're experiencing a lot of debt, a lot of taxation, and it's difficult to make ends meet for a lot of folks. So, you know, the idea of just downsizing and yet not having so much, less vehicles, less yard, and all the liabilities that go along with owning more stuff and having more property and just all that, I think that becomes an appealing idea for people. Not always practical for everyone, but it certainly is. There's a romance to it. What made you decide to build your own tiny house? Um, <laughs> one pretty obvious one is the the options I was getting for rent around town. Um, got off pretty lucky for a while because my family had a house and me and all my friends lived in it and I renovated it and then they ended up selling it because it was the time to do it. But um, yeah, ever since then, going from rental to rental and like, the last one wasn't giving me anything that I really needed for the amount of money we were paying. Um, and also, I kind of wanted to live by myself. I've never actually lived in my own space. I've always had a bunch of roommates, which has been great, but... Who would you recommend building a tiny home to? Building one, you definitely need either help or a little bit of experience, I think. I feel like if I didn't do carpentry for a few years, this would be like a huge, daunting project. I feel like it's a stepping stone. Uh, to maybe eventually being able to break into buying a regular conventional home. So I'd say young people, obviously. Well, ultimately, it can apply to anyone. A while back, we did a survey, um, just kind of sampling you know, what age group and what income level are you and trying to get a sense of what 
demographics would be interested in this. And we saw pretty much, you know, when it came to income, low, medium, and higher income, just those exceeding 75000 or 100000 it was pretty much an even split of interest. People are starting to realize that the bigger their home is, the more attention it needs, the more maintenance, the more cleaning. And you fill it with stuff, too, which also takes some of your time. Age group, we saw similar. Seniors are interested because they're on fixed income. Younger, those coming out of high school or university, now they're carrying debt from their schooling or they just simply don't have the big bucks at their startup wage job, so they're looking for an easy solution. And then the middle class. It's becoming more and more difficult to live and do and participate in travel or experiences of working and paying your bills. So all of the people that we spoke to, it seems like there's a pretty even, you know, 30, 33% split amongst any kind of demographics within Canada. What would hinder someone from living in a tiny home? Well, there's not too many hindrances to acquiring one. Uh, There's a lot of builders out there now living in one. There's a number of challenges. Municipalities are not keen on tiny houses because they don't fit into current bylaws. A lot of the designs of tiny houses, not all of them, but a lot, don't fit into current federal building code. In some areas, municipalities or rural counties, a minimum home size is actually dictated. In some places, you can't have anything smaller than 700 square feet. In some places, it's 400 square feet. Current bylaws and building codes are a bit of a challenge. So, considering the tiny homes seem like a great answer to an overpriced housing market, why would the city of Victoria be against creating regulations that would allow them? I think a lot of it was that there's an image to Victoria, right? And the entire community wants to preserve that and not take away from that beauty, the architectural, the the natural landscape and things like that. So I think some of the resistance certainly comes in that regard. But again, that's just working together and coming up with the same goals and same principles and then finding the solutions versus just throwing our hands up in the air and saying no. So, Randy, do you think that you're in the midst of building your forever home? I've thought about that. I think I'm going to live here probably for a maximum five years. Um, I think at that point I'll be definitely ready to build another one. (laughs) I'll probably get bored of this and pass it off to somebody else, build something bigger. Um, I can't really see myself selling it. What I'll probably do in the best case scenario is I'll leave it where it is and let like a family member move into it or something like that Um, because I'm really not putting a lot of money into it when it comes to like insulation and those kind of steps you have to buy some new stuff but as for finishing and framing and all that stuff it's all just been collected over the years and I've got another friend that's got a ton of stuff for me to pick through what do you hope to see in the future for those who want to build tiny homes What I envision is an organization such as ours working with with municipalities to find a common solution and to go through the trial and error process and then find the success of how to how to do it. What's the process? What's the best method? What are the what are the things that we need to know before we even start asking the first five questions and having basically a formula that that works, a standard that a citizen group, no matter what city they're in, they can go to their city and they say, here, 
we've got this, and it's been proven by this municipality, that municipality, and this, these people over there. Would you be willing to try something to solve a particular problem? Could be lack of housing, lack of affordable housing, low income, could be elderly, could be mentally ill. I mean, my goodness, there's all kinds of people that could benefit from more affordable housing. So I think it's providing that standard, that model that's workable. We are seeing evidence of that happening throughout Canada. Canada is actually fairly responsive and open-minded compared to other countries that have had to struggle a lot longer to get their voices heard. To find out more about the Tiny Home Alliance and for resources to build your own tiny home, visit www.tinyhomealliance.ca. Thank you to Randy and the Tiny Home Alliance for participating. We just finished listening to Tiny Home Tour, a piece created by members of CFUV's production team. Our last story delves into the year-long planning for Townley Lodge, a plot of affordable housing that aims to be redeveloped in the coming years. This next story is a great example of what the community is doing to take the pressure off of what is a very low vacancy rate in the rental market. Townley Lodge, a building that offers affordable housing to senior citizens, has had a redevelopment plan passed by Saanich Council. This comes after their proposal was rejected by the community the year before, followed by months and months of planning and consultation between the community and the Greater Victoria Housing Society, which owns the apartment complex. So why exactly would a community vote against the redevelopment of an old housing complex to make room for more residences, especially when the housing situation in Victoria is so competitive at the moment? We find out what it took to change the Saanich Council's mind about the redevelopment of Townley Lodge in the redevelopment. How easy is it to incorporate high-density housing in a growing community? After a year of planning, the Greater Victoria Housing Society found through trial and error that when you have the neighbourhood on your side, the task of redevelopment is much simpler. In mid-2016, the Greater Victoria Housing Society brought forward a plan to redevelop Townley Lodge, a 50-year-old building near Camosun College. This proposal aimed to replace the 39-unit apartment building with a new 51-unit building for low- and moderate-income seniors and persons with disabilities and 16 affordable family townhouses. Unfortunately, the proposal was turned away at Saanich Council and the Greater Victoria Housing Society was told to try again after listening to feedback given by concerned residents of the neighbourhood. Kay Mellership of the Greater Victoria Housing Society explains. It was a decision that I took with my board of directors. We knew uh, that we would be mortgage-free, so we owned the property outright in 2017, but also that the building was going to start to incur quite a lot of costs to keep it up to standard, as it is a 50-year-old building. The other big issue there is there's no elevator in the building, and when a, one of our tenants on the second floor uh, had mobility problems, we actually had to move them to an available unit downstairs or to another property and the bathrooms are quite they're not modern 
sizes. So some of our tenants were having challenges living in the spaces that were designed 50 years ago. Uh, And the other good thing about the site is that, of course, uh, right now with only 39 units, we knew that the site uh, would be a great site to have uh, more units on it so we could provide more affordable housing than we're currently providing. We started the planning process in 2015. We made a submission for rezoning late 2015 or early 2016. We met with the community, we met with the neighbors, we met with staff at uh, Saanich Municipal Hall, we met with all the councillors, and that accumulated in us uh, presenting our proposal at a a Saanich Council Committee of the Whole in October of 2016. At that meeting, uh, it became clear that in spite of all the changes we had made, that the neighborhood simply was not happy with what we were proposing. So council at that meeting asked us to go back to the drawing board, work with the community, and see if we couldn't come up with a plan that would get uh, more support from the community. I would say the height of the proposal is to have a seniors building and to have some family townhouses. And we really had wanted to do a four-story seniors building, but the community was unprepared to accept that. So we did reduce the building to a three-story building. So there was issues about height and then the density. We have also reduced the number of family townhouses. There were concerns about the location of our parking lot. That's been moved. There were concerns about removing existing trees, so we've dealt with that. So a lot, a lot of changes. After many open houses and meetings with members of the community, the GVHS brought this new proposal to Saanich Council's Committee of the Whole in the fall of 2017. Here's what the community members had to say during the committee. My name is Marilyn Young, and I'm representing the Camosun Community Association. While we've not engaged in extensive consultation with neighbours regarding the new proposal, we have been involved at the open houses, and I have personally been at all of them. Our general sense is that neighbours have been listened to, and that the current design addresses concerns with previous proposals. We recognise the need for affordable housing in the region and thank the applicant for their work in the community and we thank you for listening to the residents. Hi, my name is Nancy Nettinger. I'm not a neighbor of this project. I'm a social gerontologist, and I have conducted over 40 case studies and evaluations of seniors' housing across Canada, coast to coast and north. I've studied the proposal in detail. I've walked the neighborhood, and I'd like to um, congratulate the society for producing what would be considered an ideal proposal both the seniors' housing building and the townhouses around it, especially the fact that they'll have kids in them, we hope, so that the seniors can see them and enjoy watching them, are ideal. The location's ideal on a quiet street between two main arteries that you can't hear but have bus service on them. It all works. I was thrilled. My name is Jim Ross. I am a tenant at Townley Lodge. In regards to evictions for demolition from our building at 1780 Townley Street, and in regards to help in finding placement in new adequate homes, and help with moving expenses, which will be billed directly to GVHS by the movers, Yvonne Blair, who is the manager of tenant relations for the Greater Victoria Housing Society, is working with those tenants who work with her. She says she will continue to work with us to place us in adequate housing, 
until we have it, even after eviction, if that's the case, and that they are not accepting new clients until we are adequately housed. I consider that to be fair and more than the typical landlord would do. She is providing support according to her specific individual needs and desires and overall availability to those who work with her. So, Kay, what do the current residents of Townley Lodge have to say about this project? Well, they're mixed, right? Uh, they would like to live in a modern building that meets their needs. But it's bittersweet because, of course, in order to produce that, they need to move. Many of them have moved on. I mean, they, they understood that they needed to move. And when the building is built, we'd love to see if they want to come back. But by the time the building is built, another two years is going to pass. So we'll see if they're up for another move. And then, of course, there's some tenants that are very afraid and anxious about the move and the the change that's coming their way. So we're working very closely with them. We've offered, we have a tenant support person here, and we've offered her support to each one of our tenants to help them make their choices, to make plans. The most recent meeting we had really cleared up a lot of the air, and people really understand how we're going to help them. Members of council were unanimously excited to see the project move forward and congratulated the GVHS on working with the community to find a proposal that all could be contented by. I do want to compliment everybody in this room. And we've heard today some of the most ardent questioners and suggestions of alternatives saying how well this process was run. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I want to acknowledge the Greater Victoria Housing Society and their true consultation, thank them for it. Uh, The neighbours have been listened to and their concerns have been addressed. But I did hear one of the residents come forward and used a phrase that is just music to a council's ears. We are now happy. I have to say that in my time here on council, if there was a project to get the award for most improved development, this would be one of those, if not it. Again, here's Kay Mellership. While it took us a long time to get a proposal the community accepted, I think we learned a lot by working with the neighbourhood and we feel really grateful that they worked with us till we got a satisfactory outcome. So I think that was a really great learning experience for me personally and certainly for our society. It was hard and it was expensive and it was sometimes frustrating, but I think we've got a better project out of it at the end. As a person who really is focused on providing affordable housing, I would have liked to have seen more density on the site, but I accept that it has to fit into the neighbourhood. To learn more about this project, visit www.greatervichousing.org. Thank you to Kay Mellership and the Greater Victoria Housing Society for participating. That was The Redevelopment, a piece created by members of CFUV's production team. If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more stories like these, head over to cfuvpodcasts.com or soundcloud.com slash cfuv. Our intro is composed and performed by Poddington Bear. The outro for this episode is Gender, written and composed by Painted Fruit. Other music in this episode were performed by Shure and the Backhomes, wonderful artists from Victoria. 
Our producers for this episode include myself and Max Collins. This program is created by CFUV's podcasting production team. If you want to be a part of creating high-quality spoken word programming, head to cfuv.ca to find out more. Full Circle is made possible with the generous support from Oak Bay Bicycles and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Thanks for listening. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Proudly serving the cyclists among UVic students and faculty since 1963. Visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore or online at oakbaybikes.com.